Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. My name is Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Mobilization, joined by Scott Dunford through the power of the web from Redeemer Church in California. Scott, it's good to be uh, reunited. And at the time that we are recording this uh, episode here, the Bucks just had a major win uh, over the Celtics to win the series, and I know you're pretty happy about that, right? I see your I see your Bucks hat there on the video. Yeah, I'm I'm inordinately happy about that. Um, I was uh, texting one of my friends, uh, Chip Bernhardt, who's uh, a pastor. He's connected to ABWE. He's the chaplain of the Bucks, and I'm like, I, I'm so happy. I probably it probably borderlines on sin because I shouldn't be this excited <laughs> about, about a stupid sporting event. But yes, the Bucks beat the Celtics in five games, and uh, are advancing and I'm just waiting for the Sixers to do the same and to join us in the conference finals. Oh, yeah, as a lifelong Philadelphian, I'm waiting for the for the uh, Sixers to do the same, and I might be waiting for a while. But all of our non-sports fans, uh, listeners, can I guess pray for Scott and his idolatry. Well, that um, might be true. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we wander too far off, we've talked a couple times, several times, Scott, here on the uh, topic of sending um, pastors, sending churches, and what it looks like to do domestic uh, excuse me, to do, to do missions well, um, from the domestic side on the side of sending mm-hmm. here. Um, and, um, we've covered that from multiple angles, but I really think that the today's topic can help tie all of those things together. There's a really great resource that, um, I, I love, and I think it's simple and I think it's clean and it's neat and it packages things together, um, in a, in a really nice way. But, but surprisingly, as I interact with pastors and, and talk with people, it just sounds like a lot of uh, people don't know some of the basic things that are involved in doing sending well. Right. Um, and I'm talking about this little book here that I'm holding in my hands. Excuse me, this little book that I'm here holding in my hands called Missions, How the Local Church Goes Global uh, by Andy Johnson. And this is one of the Nine Marks Building Healthy Churches uh, book series. So some of you guys might know um, these books, they're, they're, there's a whole series of them that cover some of the, the core areas of the responsibility of local churches and pastors. So we brought Andy on to talk about it, and um, I, I'm excited to dive in. And I think we got some some deep questions that we want to ask, especially as we dive in towards the end. And so, uh, Scott, uh, why don't you introduce our guest to us? So we have Andy Johnson with us. Uh, he's an associate pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. He's a published author. Uh, he's a uh, Aggie. So um, for from Texas A&M, I was kind of expecting some kind of a kind of some kind of a chant or something from you, Andy. But uh, <laughs> we're known for our humility. So <laughs> oh, <I> yes. <laughs> every, every Aggie fan I know is is really shy about that. Um, but but uh, is written this book on missions. We're excited to talk about it. So we're just going to start off by asking, you know, missions sometimes have been said that it's at a crossroads. Um, you have um, a lot of different things going on in missions. You have different theological uh, streams that are emphasizing different aspects of missions. And then there's also criticism of missions, criticism from um, some about uh, the latent possible colonialism in missions. Or um, also there's this uh, tension between this parachurch idea that goes along with the mission agency um, and local churches sending well. So I'm just curious from your perspective, how is missions currently at a crossroads? Yeah, it's a great question. I think in one sense, you know, you can always divide something by a number of different contrasts. And, uh, but if I tried to distill it down to one sort of 
foundational crossroad, you know, one way the road sort of branching, uh, it really just seems to be sort of pragmatism, the idea that we're just going to look for what produces the results that we want to see visibly and a confidence in sort of basic biblical faithfulness um, and just obeying what we can best see in scripture. Now, that's a, that's a very offensive crossroads because everybody that's on the side that I'm describing as pragmatism would probably say we're, we want to be biblically faithful. But the best I can tell, the sort of man-centered pragmatic approach and a sort of Bible-centered faithfulness approach is the underlying division that shows up as all sorts of different uh, controversies and missions. Okay, so I we do this podcast to unite the worlds of theology and mission, and we find that the people that care about theology are often talking past the people in missions, and the people in missions are doing the same. So when you talk about this pragmatism, we agree. I agree. What does that look like? What and you know, even if you you feel like you have to name the names of of methodologies or things that you've seen that maybe you're concerned about, um, we're all brothers in Christ. What, what what do you mean when you see this pragmatism? How does that actually? How, how is that fleshed out? What are we worried about here? Well, you know, one of the one of the ways I see it, you know, maybe most clearly laid out is almost anything that has the word movement behind it. If if what they mean by that is trying to have immediate visible results, so so church planting movements. David Garrison, the guy who wrote that, is someone that I know. He's you know, we've had lots of conversations in which it's clear that he's a much nicer person than I am. I take my criticism with incredible grace and sort of, you know, implacable resistance. But uh, in, in the sort of church planning movement that he talks about in the book that he published, he, he very candidly says they're looking at stuff that they want to see happen, like really fast, rapid results, and they're reverse engineering the things that seem to lead to that result. And then that becomes their methodology. And I think that's one way to think about missions. And that's what I would sort of mean by pragmatism. And then there's the people that, that start out genuinely saying, okay, what, what does the Bible seem to say about the work of cross-cultural evangelism and how do we faithfully you know, proclaim the gospel clearly, love people, plant churches that, that have all the, not the nine marks, because those are just some things that people tend to overlook but the actual real biblical marks of you know, preaching the word clearly, practicing the Lord's Supper, that sort of thing. I'm, curi- I'm curious from both you guys, um, do you think you can do both? Do you think you can do good you know, work of reverse engineering what does seem to work um, while at the same time being biblically faithful? Is it a, is it, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head as we're discussing this. Is it a false dichotomy to say you can't do both? That's a good question. Go for it, Andy. Yeah, I never want to say you can't do something, but you you kind of have to have one thing that you're finally ultimately going to be relying mm-hmm. on. So I, I don't know that I've seen that done very well. I mean, it certainly doesn't mean you can't analyze what you're doing, sure. ask hard questions. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you have to be willing to be faithful without seeing immediate visible results. Right. Uh, there's a there's an old there's an old preacher from Scotland uh, that wrote a book called The Christian Ministry, Charles Bridges. And in it, he has this great quote where he says, when we're doing doing gospel work, we have to realize that sometimes 
the seeds may lie under the ground until we do and then spring up. Mm. And if you, if you can't persist with a methodology with that kind of mindset, like I know I'm doing what God's commanded. I'm getting feedback from other people. I think I'm doing it wisely and well, and I'm just going to keep doing it. Uh, for one thing, you're, you're not going to be one of the historic missionaries we talk about who's labored in the Muslim world or the Hindu world for seven, eight, 10 years without any immediate, any visible fruit. You're going to, you're going to give up and try some new method. Yeah. And Andy, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tag team on that. And, and, you know, when I think of the apostle Paul, um, I think of the fact that he, he was paying attention to how his ministry was landing when, when the Jews were closing their hearts to the gospel, he responded, he saw what wasn't working and he directed his attention to the Gentiles. And I'm not oversimplifying that situation, right? Obviously he's receiving direct revelation and there's some unique things happening there in redemptive history. But yeah, so he started with the clear apostolic message. He had a finite um, set of methods he was willing to employ in ministry. And um, it revolved all around the ordinary proclamation of the gospel, right? And, and church planting. Um, and from, from there, he was seeing how, how stuff was working on the ground and he was adjusting as he went along to it, to an extent. So I think that kind of um, encapsulates what you're saying there as well, that you can do both, but you have to start with what scripture has given us as those means of grace. Yeah. And you have to be careful. I think one of the challenges that I see with a lot of methodologies is that they decide that they, they insert the word rapid. So they decide whatever we're doing, it has to be fast. And once you decide that you've decided to relativize everything else that might slow things down, you're, you're willing to throw those things off the boat. And I think sometimes people end up throwing things off the boat that, that we've been commanded to do like carefully train elders, things like that. Yep. But that's where it, one of the challenges, I wrote an article on this years ago that one of the challenges is it's, it's more of a, an attitude and a disposition than something you can clearly nail down. I think that's why you just need to have even missionaries. They need to have other people around them, people speaking into their life, people to talk with and think through, Hey, am I, am I being appropriately critical of my own methods or am I just losing heart and looking for something else? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. Well, dovetailing with that, one of the comments that you make in the book is that missions is primarily spiritual. Um, and obviously there's this controversy that's asking, you know, to what extent are, are missionaries responsible to address physical needs, um, various injustices versus what extent is it just proclamation of the gospel and seeing souls saved? And maybe the biblical answer is is somewhere um, in the middle between two extremes, but you do drive home the point that, that the purpose of missions is primarily spiritual. So while we're talking about methods and, and defining the work of missions, and then we'll get into some of the sending church stuff. What do you mean when you say that the mission's primarily spiritual? Well, I love there's, there's a guy, I'm sure you probably read books by David Hesselgrave mm-hmm. from Trinity theological seminary. He, uh, he uses the term prioritism. Hmm. Uh, and I really appreciate the way he thinks about it, where he says, look, there's freedom in Christ to do all sorts of different things. I think what we what he would press is that as as Christian missionaries, we have to have a priority, which is the proclamation of the gospel and the rescuing of people from eternal suffering in hell. Like that's that's our priority. And we can have that priority and still do all sorts of other things to meet human temporal needs. I think the thing I mainly would push against is what I see some people saying, which is, well, we shouldn't have a priority. Both are important. And I think they are both important. 
But I think we have a priority that we see from the, the pattern of the New Testament, which is we can, we can do uh, gospel work that focuses on rescuing people from hell and establishing churches and not totally forsake loving our neighbor physically, caring about other people. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's kind of a false dichotomy. Mm. Do you see people uh, accepting this? Or do you see people pushing back on that as you talk, as you've talked about your book and as well as you just being involved in the mission discussion? Uh, I haven't had a lot of conversations where people directly push back. I think it's more where people just have to, I encourage people to ask a question like, what are you investing most of your time in? I think if we self-consciously think the proclamation of the gospel and the establishment of churches, that's our main priority. Then if we just look and say, what are we spending most of our time on? You know, there is a tendency to, you know, when I, to think when I tell people about the gospel, people say that I'm an intolerant colonial bigot. When I drill water wells, they give me a certificate from the municipality and tell me, you know, what a wonderful person I am. And people just have to ask the question, because if you look historically, there's some good research on looking at a lot of mission organizations. When they when they start talking about stop talking about prioritism, you start seeing a massive shift in their resources away from gospel proclamation and into sort of human needs, mercy ministries. Um, which I think, you know, probably shows that whatever they say their priority is, the the thing that, well, I don't want to say what their motivation is, but that's that's something one observes. I, I can understand how that could happen. I mean, especially in countries that are restricted access, that you you need some kind of, you know, a means for being in there. And usually it's an NGO or something like that. Those things really do take on a life of their own and take so much time and energy, whether that's a hospital or a business. Um, we, we had a business and um, and thankfully I'd read a, a really good book ahead of time, um, great commission companies, um, by Tom Steffen that kind of gave some, gave some, uh, examples of, of ones that worked and ones that failed. And they brought out the fact that the fact that the business itself just is so demanding that you sometimes don't have time for, for ministry. And so we try to build that into our DNA early, but, but it can be where you do ministry, if you have a business where you're doing ministry, you know, through it again, it's going to be hard. You know, you may be spending, the most of your hours on the clock working for your NGO. And I understand that, right. but there's still just, that's where relationships and conversation, you can just, when you know people, you can tell sort of the differences, like they may be spending a lot of time on their platform so they can be there. And that's just reality. And they're doing good stuff and they think that God's glorified by it, but is, are they seeing that as the way they're expanding the kingdom or are right. they seeing it as a part of something else that's the bigger priority because I, you know, I, I was going to say you, we, you can have a lot of amazing gospel conversations with people while in the course of doing business. Um, but there's also that aspect that you could easily just not have those, those intentional conversations that are driving toward seeing churches established and only yeah. be focused on the fact that, Hey, you know, this clean water is an expression of God's kingdom here. And in some ways you could argue that it is, but it isn't, it isn't in that priority way that you're saying of, of gospel proclamation, spiritual issues, conversion to Christ. Um, I, I think that's a very important emphasis that you make there. Yeah. So in, in the book that I wrote, I, I try to courageously dodge and sidestep the controversy <laughs> by just saying, hey, 
Hey, can we not just all agree that like eternal suffering in hell is the worst human mm. suffering and we should probably care about that a whole lot. And that's great. Well, that's that's a great way of encapsulating it. And in a second, I want to get into how the local church sends well and how that plays into it. But we're going to take a quick break first. Let me tell you a story about Abdul. As a teenager in a refugee camp, Abdul lived in a world of uncertainty. After a successful operation on his colon, he should have recovered, but he lost the will to live. And morning after morning, as he lay dying, he heard the voices of nurses beside his bed singing during their morning Bible study. Hospital workers serving with ABWE sat by Abdul's bedside, sharing stories of the Bible with him. But one day, Abdul was talking with a member of the team and suddenly God opened his eyes and he asked excitedly, tell me about Jesus. In the subsequent weeks, he began to smile. He started to eat, regaining his strength. He devoured every story everyone could tell him from the Bible. Abdul had been saved. Now Abdul is back in the refugee camps, sharing the gospel with his family and friends. Well, you may have noticed that I didn't mention what country Abdul is living in. And that's because we can't for security purposes. About 10% of ABWE's missionaries serve in parts of the world that we can't even mention by name. ABWE's Global Gospel Fund supports workers in limited access countries by providing security expertise, mobilizing those who seek to serve, and training new missionaries. Through the Global Gospel Fund, you can support a thousand missionaries with one gift. Please become a Global Gospel Fund partner. Go to abwe.org slash global gospel fund. That's abwe.org slash global gospel fund. So Andy, you're a part of Nine Marks, which is laser focused on the calling and role of the local church. So explain to us why the local church is central to missions. Well, I've, I've often tried to tell people when I, when I look at the New Testament, I just see the, the local church as both sort of the means and the end of missions, all under you know the rubric of God's glory. It's, it's the, the entity that Christ established to cause the mission to go forward. You know, we, we read in the book of third John that, that local churches, you know, send out people for the sake of the name and other churches support them. And we look in the pages of the new Testament, we just see everywhere people believe the gospel. The next thing we read is they were gathered into a local church that, you know, met in so-and-so's home or whatever. Uh, I think it, it seems to me, this is one of those things that I, I don't know that I have this really well worked out argument. It's just when I read the New Testament, that just seems to be the plan for world evangelization is that Christians would be converted. They gather into local churches, that those local churches would send people out that would plant other local churches. It just seems to be what the Bible says and what Christians have done for most of the last 2000 years. Yeah. And when you um, coming to us from Capitol Hill Baptist Church um, and knowing what you and your ministry stand for, when you say that the missions and the local church are inextricably linked, um, you're not just saying that, yeah, Christian community is a good thing and it's a necessary fruit of the gospel. But you're you're saying that local churches must uh, include qualified pastors, elders. Um, it must include it must center around the preaching of the word, the administration of the ordinances, church membership and discipline, all of those key marks of the church. So I think it's important to realize that there's a, uh, a strong definition of local church behind it. But what I'd love to find out from you, you know, since you wrote this book, obviously with a, a burden in mind, a need that you were seeing, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen churches make, good churches uh, in engaging missions? Well, I think one of them kind of along 
what you're saying right now is the the tendency to think of missions as the work of mission agencies, that it's sort of outsourced, mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, an overseas call center. Like we we hand people over and these entities are responsible to sort of do the Great Commission on behalf of churches. And, uh, you know, good mission agencies hate that. I, I spent 10 years on the board for the International Mission Board, which is the Southern Baptist Mission Agency. And, you know, they're, you know, it's a fairly large parachurch organization, but a great deal of their effort was not trying to usurp the role of the local church, but try to get local churches to realize, hey, that's not our job. Like, it's it's your job to raise up, disciple, care for people after they're sent overseas. Um, yeah, so I think churches that sort of outsource the Great Commission to uh, sending agencies and without realizing what their responsibilities are still as a local church, even if they use sending agencies, which are great. Um, I think that's one of the mistakes they make. I think another one is churches that just, they think the local church just doesn't have the expertise to be very involved in what goes on in international missions. Cause you know, they don't speak another mm-hmm. language. They've never lived in you know India, but I think, I think local churches that stay engaged theologically and pastorally uh, that that are willing to ask hard questions. So I think a lot of times churches, leaders and churches feel like, you know, if it would be rude for me to ask you know, difficult probing questions when I'm talking to some missionary that tells me something I don't really understand. But I think I think churches need to ask missionaries hard questions, be willing to try to hold them accountable in good ways. I think just feeling like the local church, the missions belongs to individuals and sending agencies uh, keeps local churches from doing what they can do so well in discipling, in, in theological accountability, things like that. Actually, I love that last part that you threw in there because there is a mistake of thinking that missions is the work of agencies, but thinking that missions is just the work of individuals as well. I mean, and that's huge because, you know, I'm in a recruitment role here at our agency, ABWE, and I talk to people all the time where it's purely an individual thing. I feel as though I'm called for this. I'm going to raise support. I'm going to, you know, have my friends uh, support me financially and I'm going to do this and that. And, um, very, you know, you, you, you see people making all sorts of plans, um, in their heads, uh, and even taking trips and doing all these sorts of things without the blessing and the affirmation of the local church and of pastors and elders that know them well, and that can send them as an extension of their church. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's, that's a hugely important thing to, to mention as well is that it's not an individual endeavor. Yeah. And I find that really strange. One of the things I've observed as a local church pastor for a lot of years is that people often tend to think of international missions as like this alternate reality where the laws of gravity <laughs> and thermodynamics and all the things that govern uh-huh. our life here suddenly don't apply. So like if I had a, if yeah. I had a member of my church come and say, you know, I've I've been thinking, you know, in my own head and I've decided I want to go plant a church in the town next door and I I expect kind of expect the church to help fund me and, you know, get behind my effort, you'd go, that's just weird. Like, mm-hmm. like our, our church kind of needs to be, you know, involved hmm. in that, not just you sort of deciding you want to do that. But if instead of the town next door, they say it's in, you know, Kathmandu or Delhi, India, or, you know, Prague, then people are like, well, that's international missions. So I guess we should support them. I, uh, I just don't think, 
gravity doesn't change. You know, churches, local churches need to be involved in those kinds of decisions. And uh, yeah, part of my part of my work as a local church pastor is trying to help members not think about missions the way they think about, you know, using their vacation days. I think that's one thing your book does. It's it's small enough uh, to allow a pastor to engage it without taking a ton of time. And I, I that's something I really recommend to pastors that are listening. Pick up a book like this. Uh, pick up this book um, and, and flip through it. It won't take you even an hour probably to read cover to cover if you're a fast reader. Um, but the the principles there are are critical. And I've seen so many pastors that that uh, they don't engage this idea like you've said. Um, they do see missions as possibly and competing with uh, the dollars that are coming into the church, um, especially in churches that use faith promise to fund their missions or, uh, you know, other, um, out, other fundraising means. And uh, it, it shouldn't be, it should be central. Um, so I appreciate you emphasizing that. So I'm going to just switch topics just a little bit. Um, so as a church, how should churches decide which missionaries or ministries to partner with or financially support? I realize uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church is a part of um, the Southern Baptist Convention and supports the IMB uh, through the cooperative program. But let's just imagine for a second you weren't in that particular um, convention. You were, an, you were a, a Bible church or an independent church um, thinking through that. How would you recommend churches think through who to partner with and what to partner with and who to support financially? Yeah. Well, even though we're a Southern Baptist church, about half our relationships and resources are through the IMB and about half of them are not, you know, because the IMB does certain things and does some things well and other people do other things really well. So we so we actually think through that pretty regularly about other sort of partnerships. I think mainly first, I always encourage churches to be sort of ruthlessly selective in who they would partner with up front. I think that can seem really uncharitable and big hearted, but particularly in sort of mission partnership relationships, you need to really, really, really trust the people you're partnering with. And if you don't really trust them, you're going to drive them crazy. They're going to drive you crazy. Like it's a big world. God has lots of resources. There's lots of churches. So rather than partnering with people that they're not entirely sure about, I encourage, I encourage churches to be really selective on the front end. And then once they commit to someone, then being incredibly trusting on the back end. And you can't be humble toward people you don't trust because that's just irresponsible. You know, you have to have confidence in people in order to humbly sort of submit to them in a sense and say, hey, you know, I don't really understand exactly why you want to do this, but it's not clearly unbiblical and I trust you. So we're just going to get behind you. Like you can only do that when on the front end, you really have, you know, strong theological affinity and confidence in the people. So I just encourage churches to be really careful, not just say, Hey, that sounds really exciting and get behind something, but be willing to, you know, sit down and say, Hey, here's our church's statement of faith. Is there anything that you would disagree with that we'd want to talk about, you know, do all that stuff. And if somebody's offended by that, just see that as the Holy spirit helping you to dodge a bullet. You know, you, you've missed a bad relationship. Like most missionaries I know are delighted if churches want to 
to really engage with them at a significant level and then commit to them like that. So Capitol Hill is a big church and you are all busy pastors and um, you're doing things like writing books and coming on podcasts and those kind of things. Um, I, I know how tiring being pastor is and how little margin you have. So I can imagine a pastor listening in and saying like, oh, it'd be great to do more of this background and research on these missionaries and being more selective. Can you just give some practical ways that a pastor can do that um, or sure, that a church yeah. mission committee leader can, can engage in that to, to, to do that research? One, yeah, sure. One, uh, I don't know if you know how big our church is, but it's never as big as people think it is. We have about <laughs> 960 members. Mm-hmm which is big by some standards. And I'm from Texas. That's small by Texas standards. Right. We're we're both in churches of about 50 people. So (laughs) whatever point you were Uh, trying to make is lost on our ears, but I'm sure somebody out there. (laughs) Well, I think one thing that a pastor can do that it's great is just, just invest in like two or three missionaries max. Mm. I think, you know, if you, if a local church, this takes a lot of sort of self-discipline, but I think particularly where, you know, missionaries are raising support from various churches. I've, I've long tried to trumpet, Hey, why don't we, you know, why don't we just pick one or two missionaries and give them all the money we have rather than supporting 20 missionaries with just a little bit of money here and there, because it's a big world. We don't have to try to cover the whole map. And then if you're, especially if you're a smaller church, if you just focus in on a couple of people you really trust, the stuff that I talked about is practical. It's not practical if you're supporting 20 or 30 people, but if one or two people, you can do that. And, uh, and I think it's just better for everybody. Like if those folks come back to the States, they don't have to visit 20 or 30 churches. They can visit the three or four churches that are making up most of their support. So we try, we don't do it entirely, but we try to discipline ourselves as a local church that if we're going to, if we're going to support someone, we want to try to be their primary source of support if we're able and, and try to limit ourselves. I, I find myself passing up on opportunities to support all sorts of people so that we can just focus on a few people at which we intend to be sort of an act of humility. Like we're not that huge. We can't cover everywhere. We don't have to. God has lots of churches. Uh, We can just focus on a few relationships, go really deep in those relationships and hopefully be a blessing and be sort of more focused. So we know you're coming up on a hard stop. We want to ask you, let's take you through the lightning round, because this book ends with a few practical suggestions on churches that are thinking, okay, how can we be really intentional and how can we be very selective about the missions opportunities that we do that we partner with. And there's some non-traditional means of trying to meet, reach the nations that people are doing, right? They're trying to reach the nations in our own backyard, reaching out to expats, immigrants. Um, there's people that are involved in expat churches internationally um, that are a collection of different types of people that might not be native to the field, the country that they're living in. Um, there's also tent makers, things like that. So let's just take those three right there. So if you can, uh, in whatever time you've got left, we'd love to hear your hot take on each of these issues that you address in the book. And the first one would be, um, what are some of the pros and cons of trying to reach the nations at home in our own backyard? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure I know of any cons. I right. think <laughs> I think it's a great thing to do. I think, uh, you know, churches, it's great if churches just try to recognize, hey, rather than sending our members over on short-term trips that can, can sometimes be useful but are really expensive, 
let's just see if there are people we want to reach in the neighborhood around us. Like you can get census data, go to ethnic grocery stores, you know, talk to families at your school, uh, particularly if you're in like a mid-sized city, that's where they tend to relocate refugees. So like find some refugee resettlement agency and get families from your church to volunteer to meet people at the airport and spend several months trying to help them get settled in the States. I, I just think there's kind of no downside to, to trying to do that. Who knows what'll come of it, but you know, we have, we have members of our church that are believers today because Christians that never traveled overseas made an effort to get to know them and share the gospel with them. So and particularly also if you're if you have a church that's invested with like a particular group of people, like you're spending a lot of time trying to do mission work in China, well then look for Chinese people where you where you live. And the fact that you traveled over there becomes a huge a huge, you know, bridge to sort of build relationships with them. So I think, you know, as the US gets more and more sort of international, I think there's just no downside to doing that, along with sending people out doing lots of other things. All right. What about uh, international churches that are overseas? Maybe they're English speaking, not focused a lot on contextualization. Yeah, that's, that's one of the ones that for our church has been one of the most interesting kind of shifts in the way we've thought about, you know, global evangelism. We, we just think international expat churches are just one tool in sort of a big gospel toolbox for international work. But, but we've just seen where those churches are actually real churches, which is, I think, probably not true of most international churches overseas, but where they actually have membership, they intend to be a church, they're serious about what they're doing, they're, you know, they're trying to set a biblical example to other churches around them. But, you know, we've seen that, yeah, they're not, they're not like the magic bullet, they're just one tool, but they can actually be really helpful in helping missionaries, especially new missionaries, like, actually stay there and not decide to go home because they've got a place in a language they understand where they can actually be spiritually cared for uh, because, you know, missionaries need the local church, like Hebrews chapter 10 talks about, just like everybody else. I think they can, they can also be great places for training. Uh, most of the international expat churches that we've had the privilege of sort of helping to plant or be involved with over the last maybe 15 years almost all of those churches are running internship programs and the interns that they're training are from places like Afghanistan, Pakistan, Egypt. Uh, I was just over in uh, a country visiting with the interns from one of those churches and they were, they were all from Muslim majority countries and they could get trained at that international expat church because their country didn't care if they went to where that church was, but they would have been in big trouble if they came to the U S. So I just think they can be, I think a lot of people are down on them because so many of them have not been very healthy churches. And I think sometimes people don't realize if they are actually serious, healthy churches, they can be sort of one more flower in the missions garden that can be really useful. I think one reason people might be down on them is just that they maybe a little bit of jealousy. Um, Cause if you're, if you're, if you're plugging away working, let's just say in a, heavily restricted access country with with us that particular people group it may be very slow going and then you look across the street and you see the the international church pastor who's pretty well known and is very out there and open in his ministry and that can be that can be discouraging um i kind of speaking from a little bit of experience on that um and, and that 
that's a fight you've got to fight internally. I'm just speaking to missionaries who might be listening, you know, like don't be looking at your brother out there who's doing the gospel work. Um, and they're seeing fruit in one field. Just be faithful in your field. It's okay. The Lord sees and knows. Yeah. And I, you know, you want to be careful about assessing people's motivations, but I think you may be in many cases, right. We actually have a family from our congregation that was in a, a fairly restricted access city, uh, they were there laboring as sort of traditional missionaries. They were learning the language, building relationships, you know, work, he was working for an NGO. And then for a lot of reasons, we ended up helping to plant an international church in that city. And, and he humbly said, he said, you know, this guy that came into pastor it, which was another guy from our congregation, like he's only been there six months. He doesn't know the language. He doesn't know anything. And all the Arabic speaking evangelical pastors around the area are like, Hey brother, come preach at our church. Hey, come be my friend. And they weren't giving this missionary guy the time of day, but he very humbly decided, Hey, this is my chance. And so he, along with the international church pastor just sort of became a team and using the fact that I think these other churches could sort of understand what a pastor is. They don't really understand what this missionary guy is, but they, they know what a pastor is and working alongside him. Uh, they've been able to see a ton of fruit in relationships with these other churches. And even now maybe partnering with another local congregation to see a church planted. So I love that. Yeah. I think it can be, it can be a great partnership with more traditional missionaries. My encouragement on the other side of that too, would be if you're in an international church and just seeing it really blowing up, don't, don't be deluded into thinking this is the model that if everyone just adopted, it would reach the world for Jesus either. There can, there can be that. I've heard of that attitude as well, where oh, these yeah. missionaries aren't getting it. If they just did this international churches, boy, we'd be killing it. And, uh, both sides can be problematic. Yeah, I understand. And where we've seen them, particularly in like some Arab context, we recognize like they are powerful tools in an Arab context to evangelize Filipinos, Indians, you know, people, people that aren't Muslims from the Gulf, but those people still need to be evangelized. So that's great. But they're not, they're not often a strat. Sometimes they're not a strategy that's going to reach the local context immediately. But hey, it's still, you know, praise God for the fruit. Well, that's some, um, those are some really important caveats and, and love the back and forth there as well. And Andy, um, how can people get a hold of this resource and how can people follow you and what you've uh, written and what you're doing in your ministry a little bit more? And uh, before you answer that, I'll also just say for ABWE listeners, um, there is a partnership with ABWE where we can get some of these nine marks resources to you in free digital downloads. Um, you can email me and uh, we can get you in touch with the right person and we'll share my email address, contact info at the end of the episode. But for the rest of our listeners, uh, Andy, how can they follow you and get a hold of this book? Uh, that's, a, that's a kind thing to ask. I don't know that you can really follow me. I'm, I'm, I spend the vast majority of my time just being a local church pastor. So they could come visit our mm. church in Washington, D.C. and I'd be glad to say hi to them. And there you go. They, can, <laughs> they can buy the book from Nine Marks or from Amazon. I love it. And uh, yeah, that would probably be it. Amen. Well, thank you, brother, for your time today. And uh, we wish you uh, blessings on how you're serving there in the church. And uh, we pray that more churches would adopt the model of uh, not only creativity and uh, stretching, but also biblical faithfulness and how they engage missions here at home and abroad. Yeah. Amen. 
If you want to get more great content on theology, missions, and practice, go to missionspodcast.com. And while you're there, subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite listening platform. And please give us an honest review and a five-star rating. And don't forget to be sending your questions to alex at missionspodcast.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us.